0: All right, hello everyone, and welcome to this ESIP online conversation about China, its economic openness and the climate of doing business in China. My name is Frederick Eriksson, and I'm very pleased to welcome today Frank Levin, author of a brand new book about doing business in China, The Smart Business Guide to China E-commerce, published just a few months ago by Penguin. Frank has had a long and distinguished career in U.S. politics, the foreign service, and the private sector. He is a former political director at the White House, and his last post in a U.S. administration was about 15 years ago, when he was the U.S. Undersecretary (coughs) of Commerce for International Trade, dealing, among other things, with China. He has also been a US ambassador to Singapore, and between his political appointments, Frank has had senior positions in banking, marketing, and consulting, and most of the time in Asia. Frank, welcome to ESOP, and congratulations to your new book. Frederick, thanks so much. It's great to be back with you. I, I just wish COVID
1: has uh, sort of created a bit of uh, turbulence in the world today, as we all know, but I'm just sorry I can't be visiting you in Brussels, as we've done in the past, and have these in-person meetings are just a little bit warm a little more fruitful but but zoom isn't bad zoom isn't bad and i'm delighted to be able to spend some time with you and with the uh, audience here today thank
0: you no it's it's our pleasure and and look forward to hosting you in brussels next time so we're going to talk about your book in a minute but i wanted us to start this conversation in china and current trends of economic policy in china There is an increasing number of friction, I think we can say, in China's trade with the United States and Europe. And China, of course, is far from responsible for all of these frictions. But the general trend in Beijing's economic policy seems to be that it's closing itself. Business and trade restrictions are going up. Foreign companies may still be making money in their Chinese operations, but it's getting harder and harder New models for economic policy, like the dual circulation model, is expanding, and China seems ever more intent on using industrial policy to favor its own industries at the expense of foreign companies. So, Frank, what's going on? I think your
1: description is largely accurate, Frederick. Uh, I would describe it, though, as a tendency rather than an absolute direction, meaning it's it's a question of balance. So uh, I think China is uh, more nationalist today than it was 10 years ago. Not just an economic policy, but a political policy as well. I think China is less excited about international participation in its economy now than 10 years ago. And add to that, as we discussed a minute ago, uh, COVID complications, add to that supply chain disruptions. You know, and you simply have a less, seemingly have a less inviting business environment. I, I think all of that is true, but but that's true in a relative sense, meaning there's been deterioration, in my view, compared to, say, five years ago, in the business environment. And the reason I say that it's a relative sense and it's a deterioration is because EU business activity in China is up this year, up markedly this year, and U.S. Business activity with with China is up markedly this year. So, despite everything you said, which I think is basically accurate, uh, China is still an inviting market. And China still, depending on the sector, welcomes international participation. I would say if you're selling into the market, and I, I, today I focus mainly on consumer goods, if you're selling into the market, China's generally an open market for cosmetics, for apparel, for Pet food for baby gear uh, for sports equipment. China is a very open market. It's also open for agricultural products. It's also open for food and beverage. I mean, if you're uh, if you're Unilever, you're saying this is our best year ever in China. If you're Coca-Cola, you're saying this is our best year ever in China. If you're Starbucks or Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's the best year ever in China. So in certain sectors, it's very open, very welcoming, very inviting. In other sectors, tech. Uh, finance, telecommunications, it's not particularly welcoming. It's tough. Uh, and and you almost go from sort of presumption of innocence to presumption of guilt, in those other sectors. So I think it depends very much what sector of the economy you're in.
0: And would you say, I mean, if you talk about these more difficult sectors, you mentioned tech, finance, for instance, is it a question about business environment getting more difficult for foreign companies or are we talking about a generic situation where also Chinese companies are finding life, business life, a bit harder?
1: Well, there's a little of both. It's interesting because, you know, there's a nationalist undercurrent in China that, by the way, I don't think is that different than what we see in Europe or what we see in the United States. Uh, so there's a bit of nationalism and there's also a bit of populism, which, again, is maybe not that different than what we see in Europe or the United States. But that populist element talks about uh, resentment toward this new class, resentment toward the entrepreneurial class, toward venture capitalists, towards uh, tech people, resentment toward the role they play in society. And so there's been a government pushback against the tech sector over the last 12 months. Uh, for example, ed, educa- China had some very impressive educational uh, tech, uh, platforms, software networks, the government decreed that these cannot be for profit, uh, that it's unseemly or not, doesn't lend itself towards social harmony. If you people are profiting from educational, uh, uh, software. Uh, and so it really hammered that whole sector. And I think something like 30 ed tech companies went out of business over the last six months uh, that That had nothing to do with uh the international trade that had, that was simply a domestic moving China against the tech sector right so i don't I don't think it's clear that this is helpful to china's economy or society, but it does help the government retain sort of a natural monopoly if you will in areas of society that it deems should be under government control, and education is one of those i think in i think what we would say in the west is look uh, even if government bears primary responsibility for education there's nothing intrinsically wrong with having online tutoring or uh, online homework solving chat rooms or other kind of even if they are for profit uh, and these can actually uh, bolster uh, ultimate educational attainment if you allow for these and there's always going to be the the student who has uh, non traditional needs uh, you know, think of a student in a remote area or somebody wants exotic language uh, training. If, you know, if you want to study Latin and you and the local school system doesn't teach Latin, you can find this online. So, uh, so there's a lot of good arguments for it, uh, but China's gone in a different way.
0: But is the basic proposition here that we are, in a way, seeing a China was perhaps normalizing itself and it's following the Sort of pathway that many other countries in the past have seen um, after a period of very rapid economic growth, which has created, of course, a gilded class of entrepreneurs and others that have the resources to to basically pay their way through society. And Now you have sort of more of a a political reaction to it. It's about redistribution, about uh, cutting down the size you... of entrepreneurs. Is 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 that yeah. what it's all about?
1: Well, I think that is an important factor. I was interesting. I was reflecting on this because. If we look at the old Soviet model before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, the Eastern Europe uh, satellites, Cuba, North Korea, none of these societies had a successful economy to speak of. I mean, East Germany was more prosperous than than uh, uh, other elements, but, but, but there was no alternative path to success in any of these societies except through the party apparatus. More or less. I mean, you could be maybe a famous athlete or you could be a chess grandmaster, but if you wanted the dacha in the uh, Soviet Union and you wanted a car, you had to be a party member. And uh, what's happened in China is they look, you have many paths. There are many paths. You can start your own company, you can go work for a bank, you can go manage a bunch of Starbucks, uh, and you can have a successful, happy life completely outside of government or party control. So no, no communist system has ever dealt with this kind of proliferation of channels. And I think, I think some of this is a little bit of a pushback against the the tech space. I think the message to the tech community is regardless of how successful you are, regardless of how many ideas you have, when it comes to government areas of government purview, we call the shots. We, the government call the shots. All right. So you have latitude, in the in the private sector, you have latitude in goods and services, but we run the show when it comes to government policy.
0: I mean, one one thing I find a bit uh, perhaps paradoxical, um, even odd in this scenario is that, I mean, if you would take sort of a more aggregate view on the Chinese economy, you would see that it's had a remarkable growth of its industrial sector over the past 30, 40 years. And now you have economic diversification, economic modernization, which means that they're beginning to grow in non-industrial sectors on the back of um, growing income, growing consumption. They want perhaps to make sure that um, their own service sector is going to benefit that is going to have a bit of a head start against foreign companies so they want to give some uh, privileges to to those um, and make sure that the consumption right that we're going to find in china over the next 20 30 years is also going to lead to chinese companies that are uh, not just successful in china but also successful globally but that doesn't seem to be the case i mean it seems to be sort of they are cutting back on services they want to limit entrepreneurship and dynamism and mm-hmm. experimentation in the services sector um, they want to favour state-owned companies now in the services sector, and you have sort of that premium on industrial political orientation that you see in so many other countries as well.
1: Yeah. Do you agree? I, I think I think what you describe is is uh, generally accurate. You know, there's a bit of a paradox in economic development if you're a developing country, meaning if you allow international participation, if you allowed every auto company in the world to come in as they choose and invest and put the factories you get over time, over a few decades, you get a fair amount of tech transfer, and this actually spills over your own domestic industry. But you've got to have the patience and the vision to allow this kind of economic activity. But you can see an analogy in the service sector as well, whether it's accounting firm or health services, to say if you, if you allow the top 30 hospital systems or medical practices in Europe to set up in China and to practice in China, You would provide enormous boom to the Chinese medical sector, but it might take 10 or 20 years for that to ripple through, but you wouldn't end up helping train a generation of Chinese medical professionals. But you've got to be willing to put up with that participation, which from the Chinese point of view, I think they view as penetration or sometimes even exploitation. So there's always, every society wrestles uh, between economic rationalism and economic nationalism. And for decades, the Balance in China was towards rationalism, to say we are we 've really fallen behind we 're a poor country we 've got to move toward market economics we 've got to move toward open society or open economic platform we 've got to engage the world and trade that That was the dominant view for decades as China got to maturity and uh, now it 's comfortably middle income with enormous elements of of affluence in China. I think that's just less appealing. I think it's less appealing to say we need to do all of this. I think they sort of said we did it. We took the journey. Um, we can now be a little more insular and still have the benefits of the modern economy i I think that's a questionable assertion, but we see how seductive it is
0: and what's the expectation for for the future then i mean do you do you expect sort of this rebalancing between economic rationalism and economic nationalism to Continue in the nationalist direction, or I th- think there could be sort of some some pushback against it, or at least that the cost of making those type of choices are you know soon going to emerge, and there will be a consequence for, well, for the Chinese. Well,
1: I'll tell you this: I don't I don't think we'll see radical changes uh, this year because this is a political year in China. The Party of Congress meets at the end of the year, and it is expected that President Xi is attains his goal of a third term in office. So this year is going to be a year of political stability where the emphasis overwhelmingly is not going to be on reform or adjustment, but it's going to be on keep growth on track and deal with COVID. And if you and I sit down uh, the last day of this year and say, what did China do? I think you'll say 95 percent of what China did this year was economic growth and COVID. And that's that's the goal for this year. But your question, I think, is properly answered after the party Congress to say, look, we have an opportunity to open sectors of our economy we choose or to keep them closed or engaged as we see fit. Uh, And I think that question is still being debated in China. As as you noted, Frederick, the long-term trend is a very positive trend. The long-term trend is a significant reduction in tariffs over 40 years, significant internationalization of the Chinese economy over 40 years. But I'd say over the last two or three years, that really slowed down or stopped. The appeal of that really faded. So I think it's an open question where President Xi will take the country next year.
0: All right. So let's come back to these issues in a while. And I'd also like to quiz you on how you think Western economies are going to respond to current trends and, and what are all sort of the development of um, more specific Chinese policies in America and Europe. But I wanted first to talk about your book, uh, which I find um, to be sort of a, a very great read. And uh, I think sort of a, if I'm going to give you a, a, a summary, it's basically you're collecting your your business experiences that you've had in China and 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 trying to present what are the key secrets to business success if you want to do business in china so frank what what are the key secret, well,
1: secrets well uh, yeah and here's and here's a little bit of background we work my company works in china e commerce and we take uh, European and American consumer brands and we run their china e commerce program for them so we're an outsource provider for companies that might have a successful or nicely growing uh, set of products but but china is pretty remote and china's a little bit intimidating most people don't have a lot of familiarity there so they they forgo market entry despite the huge size of the market uh, so what we say to those brands is look we can we can take your products and sell them for you in china we'll be your distributor or we'll be your agent in china we, and we do it through e-commerce so it's not that expensive China is the largest e-commerce market in the world over 50% of global e-commerce is in China so so any brand can have a pretty successful china strategy just with e-commerce so that's what but in terms of bring that into the book this this world of e-commerce gives you immediate data and feedback and results from what you're doing. So you collect a lot of insight on Chinese consumers and you can take uh, a great European brand and you can try four different advertising campaigns online in China and you can see right away what's working and what's not working. So it it gives you a lot of discussion points about Chinese consumers and how they might differ from Western consumers or uh, Western brands, what they need to do to communicate. And that's the... uh, That's the basis of the book. To answer your question, the number one obligation of any Western company in Chinese consumer space is you must have some kind of differentiated product. The product cannot be a generic product. So you either have very strong features in your product or you have a very strong brand. There has to be something about your product that is special or different or attractive or unusual. But if you're simply showing up in China and saying, I, I have I have a pen, I have a pen, they say, well, China's got pens. China is not waiting for your pen. Now, if you say this is a Mont Blanc pen, it's maybe the finest pen in the world, and it's a fabulous gift because it shows respect and it shows artisanal strengths, uh, then you say, all right, we have something I think we can work with. Uh, so you have to get out of the generic space, out of the mass space, and stick your, your almost by definition in the premium or luxury kind of space. But the European luxury goods do extremely well in China and the the premium and super premium goods uh, do as well. I mean, there's that upper strata of Chinese consumers who are hungry uh, for these products, the same way uh, European or American consumers are hungry for these products. And e-commerce makes it attainable.
0: So what companies have... um... Had great success then in China. Can you give us a couple of examples that, you know, European American companies that really went through and. Yeah,
1: you'd almost say, Frederick, the the definition of a global brand is a brand that has meaning in multiple cultures, multiple societies, and so forth. So, uh, what I think of the brands that do well in China, Mercedes Benz is fabulously successful. I think it's uh, Daimler's number one market outside of germany is china um ikea does extremely well in china for the same reasons that it does well elsewhere because it's very good value for money very functional very easy to put together and some of the same considerations you have smaller apartments and smaller family sizes so if you're uh, living in an apartment, odds are you might be living by yourself. You've got to sort of handle everything by yourself. And you put a real premium on the space efficiency that IKEA brings you, simplicity of design, and a high efficiency that all, uh, IKEA stands for. So it's a, a fabulous brand. You know, in the American brands, we look at great brands like Nike does extremely well in the market, exactly for the same reason. I mean, Nike made this incredible evolution globally from a brand that stood for technical athletic excellence. Uh, You know, we make the best shoes, according to them. We stand for technical excellence, but they evolved to stand. No, we stand, we're a lifestyle brand. We stand for aspiration. Just do it. So anybody at all, whether you're athletic or not, you should wear Nikes because this, this means you, you are aspiring for some kind of better life or some kind of goal in your life. So uh, Nike, all of the Procter & Gamble brands, I mean, the same point, these are everyday uh, items. You could say the Unilever products as well. But, you know, whether it's a Crest toothpaste or the shampoo or the soaps, the laundry, tied laundry detergent, extremely well for the exact same reason people want. They want quality, but it's at a reasonable cost. And so these are everyday expenses.
0: How important is it that you have sort of a very thorough online e-commerce strategy if you want to step into the Chinese market? I mean, I think... For some companies, especially in that bracket that you talk about that maybe maybe they have great products, but they find China to be a bit intimidating, maybe far away. It's language barriers. They know it's a very large e-commerce market, but they also know it's highly sophisticated and it's just difficult to find your own niche in that market. So can you you avoid it or do you need to go in on on e-commerce as well? It, it is difficult. Uh, and, and by
1: the way, some brands are very good at telling their story. Some brands do this well in their home market and some brands just do not do this. Some brands rely largely on word of mouth or, a domestic physical store footprint. I'll tell you who had enormous problems making this journey toward digital were the luxury brands, because if you go back to the early day, earlier days of e-commerce go back five or 10 years, and e-commerce is viewed as a mass market, you know, Jeff Bezos will sell you a book, that's okay. But we're not gonna put an Hermes bag, or Hermes necktie, or Louis Vuitton, 10,000 euro item online. Now you can find it all online. Now that's all that. But it was a journey for the luxury companies because they said digital advertising itself is mass market. And we don't wanna do that. It can reduce brand value. But I think they've all accommodated themselves to that. It's not so much a China point as it's an internationalization point. If you want to go into a new market, you're losing your home market advantage. And in your home market, you have extraordinary word of mouth, very high degree of familiarization. Not only did, you know, every family in your home country grew up with this, but their parents grew up with it as well. So everybody knows. So so really the name of the game in your home market might just be distribution. You don't even have to worry about advertising. You don't have to worry about explaining yourself. But in China, of course, you, then you or any new market, you don't have word of mouth. You don't have familiarization. You don't have distribution. You're, you're an exotic product or niche product. So you have to court the, the customer. You have to explain yourself and talk to you. I'll tell you, we worked with a major American food product company selling peanut butter in China. And peanut butter is not part of the diet. Uh, And uh, although certainly peanuts are, the food itself is, but peanut butter and peanut butter as a sandwich spread is completely exotic use. Um, And this company had never explained what peanut butter was for because every single household in America had this product, used this product, their parents used this product. It was ubiquitous. It's obligatory. You have to have a peanut butter sandwich or a peanut butter jelly sandwich. So you don't have to explain to the American consumer. But in China, you have to say, listen, is this a health food? Is this nutritious? Is this uh, uh, just an efficient food? Because you can carry a sandwich with you. So it's a good workplace food. Is it uh, a snack food? What is the point of peanut butter? And what kind of moms buy peanut butter for their kids? So, so you have to uh, tell some kind of story about yourself, and be able to. Allow, uh, you have to allow the consumer to fall in love with you, right? And this is hard, I think, for established brands because they their starting point is what well, everybody does love me, right? And you say, well, you no, know, in your home market everybody loves you. In new market, people don't necessarily love you. So, uh, so how do you tell your story? Uh, that that's a key differentiator in the digital space. And to answer the question specifically, yeah, you really need to be online in China. Even if half of your sales are offline, your brand will be understood and perceived and discussed online. It is a, China is a digital nation, and particularly when it comes to consumer behavior, it's a digital nation. So the consumer will research online, evaluate online, discuss you online, look at rating sites online. The entire brand identity is online. So what I would say to any brand is there is a conversation taking place right now about your brand. Everybody's in this conversation, except you. You have to join the conversation. Some brands are very good. By the way, the beauty brands, the beauty, the cosmetics brands are very good at this. There's something about the audience or their product, but the audience in their home market wants a digital conversation, wants to discuss it, use it, show it, right? And so they already have this in in their DNA, that we need to be digitally active. We need to discuss our product with our customer base. So the beauty brands do extremely well in China because they have the strength.
0: Let's come in a minute to a few risks that I think a lot of companies are trying to weigh in when they think about China. But let me first ask you, so what are, what are the most common mistakes that companies make when they step into China? I mean, I suppose we've covered... Uh, a few of them already indirectly in the sense that they don't have a strong online presence or that they may come in with a product which is generic and they don't try to find sort of their own story in China about it. But uh, is it well, something else that well, many companies me have done something wrong else. With?
1: I see this in America and I suspect we see the same thing in the EU experience is that a company l- learns The wrong lesson, so to speak, from EU expansion or from U.S. North America expansion, which is to say you can have a really nice brand, great products late. And they spent 20 or 30 years building out an EU presence and they're in 10 markets now. and They have 300 million euros of revenue. So that's a really nice story. And then they go to China and they hit all sorts of headwinds and bad news and nothing really works out. Well, what, what how could this be? because we've already established that they're in 10 markets at 300 million. Something's working, something really lovely about this product. So the most common mistake is the mistake of nothing or the sin of nothing, which is to say a company goes to China and it changes nothing. It doesn't change its product slate. It doesn't change its pricing. It doesn't change its distribution. It doesn't change its message. Because the entire history of the company is with homogeneous markets if you if you've expanded across europe that's great but these markets are largely homogeneous yes i understand this cultural difference i i i i get all that but the consumer in uh germany and the consumer in france will be 90% the same 85% the same so you're not looking at radical i mean if you're selling toothpaste your toothpaste ads in both markets are going to be generally the same largely the same right but you go to china and it's less purchasing power lower levels of education. Uh, It's still a middle market economy, even though online it's very active and there's a lot of affluence there. Uh, And there's all sorts of cultural and language gaps. How do you explain yourself to these new customers and what does the new customer like or dislike? So the point is, for the first time, this company has to do a little market research, a little bit of analysis. How is your brand being discussed online? What are your competitors doing online? What are the price points? Who's the local competition from the Chinese brands? So all of those adjustments have to be made about entering the market because the Chinese consumer, if if the French and German consumers are 85% the same, the Chinese consumer might be 60% the same. There's going to be some differences. There'll be some similarities, but there'll be some gaps. So adjusting your messaging, your value. Prop- I'll give you one example from the U.S., if you look at it, and this is now a Belgian brand, uh, I'm talking about Anheuser-Busch, which is InBev now. So it's a Belgian company, uh, American legacy brand. Budweiser uh, is the lead brand uh, in the U.S. And you look at a Budweiser commercial and you see, ask yourself, what is the purpose of Budweiser? Why am I supposed to buy a Budweiser? What does it do for me? What does it allow me to do? The answer in the U.S. advertising is very simple. The purpose of Budweiser is it's how we signify friendship, how we signify a social relationship. What friends do together is have a Budweiser, right? So the whole point of holidays and family activities and enjoying life a little bit is to have a Budweiser with your friend. And this is the value of Budweiser. If you look at the Chinese Budweiser ads, they're much more likely to portray Budweiser in terms of business success. The point of a Budweiser is not to signify friendship, but to signify success. A Budweiser is what you drink after you've made the sale or you've closed the deal or you've met your numbers or you deserve some kind of reward. So it is a, it is a triumph event that you have prevailed, you have succeeded, and you are so signifying with the Budweiser. So it's the exact same product, the exact same can, but you could say the social cultural context is different. And and you want to be able to speak to the consumer in their language.
0: Mm, that's a great example. So what about political risks um, and whether there are problems already now and perhaps in the future for companies that come from America, for Europe and that larger pol- sort of political frictions between China and the West is going to lead to a bad consumer reputation in China as well. And one of the reasons I ask is um, it's one example which has been pretty big in Europe and also prompted a few policy um, discussions in Europe. And it's, it's the case of H&M, which ran into problems in China because of the, the situation in Xinjiang with, uh, with forced labor and migration camps. Now, H&M didn't necessarily court this conflict, uh, but it ended up with it and had a few... Uh, there are pretty significant problems with um, consumer actions and politically orchestrated consumer actions. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what are the risks here sort of that you, you, you're you going to end up with a bad rap just because you are foreign and that you may not be um, sort of in tune with the main political messaging, even if you if, even if you as a company you don't court this conflict, you don't seek it with, with Beijing?
1: A very fair question, because there are certainly sensitivities in China. As to discussions of China, you'll see very rarely in this world, and I can't think of a, a a similar example, say from a European country or from the United States, where a brand or a company got in trouble because it somehow disagreed with government policy. So uh, there's just much lower sensitivities on these points than uh, in China. Although we know in Europe, in the United States, there are social norms. And if uh, an executive in a company says something that is viewed as outside those social norms, the company can be subject to a boycott or the the executive has to apologize. So these these sorts of issues can, in different shape, can take place in Europe or North America. But with China, it's typically a uh, government response because they perceive hostility from the company or or violated some kind of norm that the government's established. All I can say is move, move carefully, you move thoughtfully, focus group and test what you're saying and doing, and uh, realize you're in a more sensitive environment. And that just because you have wide latitude for expression in your home market doesn't mean you enjoy that latitude in China. So it requires to be a bit. Uh, sure-footed in the market, and, and I'd say I'd make this point in general to corporate leadership: you probably have a set of behavior in your home market because you're that's where you're based, where you might comfortably talk about issues from pollution to monetary policy, and this would not this this wouldn't be a problem for anybody because they understand you're from that country and you have a voice in that society. China doesn't normally welcome that kind of involvement from foreign companies so there's no need there's no obligation on the company's part to articulate its views on Chinese issues right my view is uh your uh, every every country you go into you're a guest right and you have to try to behave according to the guest rules of that uh, and it doesn't matter whether you know it's a country whether it's Korea or Mexico or China uh you've got to play by the rules they stipulate if you can't do that, then then you really shouldn't enter the market, right? But if you say, I'm going to go to Mexico and I'm going to hold a press conference telling everybody in Mexico what I don't like about Mexico, I I just don't think that's a very wise approach. I think you can do business in Mexico and have a of success in Mexico, but there's no need for you to hold yourself out as the Supreme Court of Mexico, that it's your job to tell everybody in Mexico what, what makes you unhappy. Um, so it's it's only going to result in some kind of pushback. So uh, so it does require some kind of message discipline and requires some kind of need to be sure-footed in the market.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a very good segue to come into Western policies towards China as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, both both America and Europe are struggling with developing new policies vis-a-vis China that, on the one hand, try to maintain some or a high degree of openness, but at the same time also responds to problems that is yeah. emerging in commercial relations with, with China. Uh, the Biden administration has kept Trump's tariffs on China, and yeah. I think in the spirit of a mid-class foreign policy, probably going to look to increase some of these restrictions on China, especially in the field of technology. The EU has proposed a raft of measures Uh, recently that will have the impact of basically reciprocating China's barriers to trade and market-based competition. So do you think they are on the right path? Um, I think
1: there's something that's missing there. and, and And I have trouble giving them high marks. I think what's missing there is seeing China as part of a global economic policy or global trade strategy. In other words, if you're trying to get some kind of better behavior from China, better trade behavior, better economic behavior from China, one of the most important steps to Europe and the U.S. can take is to work with third countries, work with third parties. And that way you can induce China to behave better. Meaning, if U.S. were to join the TPP, which Trump and Biden have forsaken, but that would at least... Raise the cost to China of economic inefficiencies. If there were a transatlantic free trade area, it would uh, it would similarly would it would raise the cost to China of its own inefficiencies and it would help move us toward global norms. What if you had a U.S. European accord on automobiles, meaning everything from pollution control to telemetrics to autonomous vehicles, so that basically any car sold in one market could automatically be sold in the other market? The point is, if you do that, you have a global norm. The Japanese come on board, the Koreans come on board, and and you've established. So if you're trying to get China to adhere to global norms, you need to establish the global norm. And the more options Europe has for trade, uh, the more powerfully you can communicate with China, the more options U.S. has the same thing. Now, unfortunately, over the last five years, the U.S. has closed a lot of doors on trade. So it, so the U.S. message to China is we're very unhappy with you. We don't think you're trading fairly. We, we want to do less with you. But then the U.S. message to the rest of the world is we're unhappy with you as well. We we don't like anybody to say, well, you have to decide at some point that you want to have friendly relations with somebody. And, and you're better off probably working on enhancing friendly relations. So what we saw, if I may say this, what we saw from Trump was really at variance with traditional U.S. trade policy, meaning... If we go through the modern era for sort of 40 years from sort of 1950 to 1990 or 2000, 40 or 50 years, the starting point for U.S. trade policy was to recognize that every country in the world had a different appetite for trade, different appetite for liberalization, a different appetite for moving ahead. And the mistake would be to try to change that appetite. There's very little we can say or do to anybody in Europe, in China, in India to say you need to liberalize faster. Would always say, it. but Europe decides for itself how fast to go. China decides for itself how fast to go, as does India or Mexico, everybody. so the point is we can 't change your preference. What we should do then is just try to work for those who have the strongest preference the The, the countries in the world that have the most appetite for liberalizing on trade, who want to run the fastest, go the fastest, do the most good let 's work with them and let 's not worry about the laggards, right, and our golden life cannot be to try to rehabilitate companies that have no appetite for trade. Now, that's easy to do when all the countries have smaller economies. It's harder to have that policy with China so large and so massive that its trade distorting effect has broader consequences. Nonetheless, I would say the starting point for Europe and America is go as fast as you can with all the countries that want to work with you, right? And don't focus your effort on trying to work with countries that don't have much appetite for working with you
0: no i think i think that's a very very valid point frank and i think it's it's generally part of um, any economic strategy that america or europe should devise in order to be able to basically raise its competitiveness and its profile in the global economy in an age of course where the relative significance of china is just going to grow that that's what we're going to see in the next 30 40 years i mean by what is it by 2030 china's probably going to be a larger economy than america by 2050 we're talking about sort of a, a pretty pretty strong position for not just china of course but for a few other countries as well and uh, europe and america uh, would do well to prepare itself for for this type of future by Working more, more closely together and and making themselves more competitive, so we have that on the one hand on the other hand we have we are confronted with some more specific issues that that China is raising. some of them relate to security, others relate to for instance what we were talking about in the past on issues around human rights uh, the political environment more generally here in Europe now we are seeing the development of um, policies that are going to have a consequence on any company that have a supply chain which goes into difficult countries like china and i think this places a lot of companies in 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 a difficult position in the sense that they are facing regulators consumers in in western markets that are increasingly worried about any participation in the supply chain from Forced labor and and and, and such examples. Uh, on the other hand, it's increasingly difficult to find a conversation with China about how we're going to manage these issues, and that may end up in a position where sort of the only option is to is is to exit China.
1: Yeah. No. Uh, look, it's a it, it, there are complications. There there are political issues in China. There are political issues back in Europe or in the U.S. as well. I I would not advise countries to exit any market in general i think we're all concerned about human rights my my starting point is that the core question that a company has to ask itself in a in a market that might have human rights problems is is the company's own corporate culture and behavior and activity consistent with its norms is it respecting consumers and treating consumers the right way? Its employees? Is it being fair to its employees? Is it observing its own human rights policies internal to its companies? Meaning, I don't expect a European company operating in Saudi Arabia to change Saudi Arabia. Over time, Saudi Arabia might change, but not because of what Brussels might say or Washington might say. But I do expect any European company operating in Saudi Arabia to observe its own norms so that women are treated fairly so that there's policies against sexual harassment um, so that it's not uh, participating in any, any untoward activities. All right. And I'd say on that basis, I'm quite comfortable for Western companies participating in Saudi Arabia. And I think perhaps over time, it might have positive social impact in helping at least the corporate sector of the society understand about what a modern society looks like. Right. So, uh, so it's, I, I think isolation—the sort of the alternative argument of saying I'm unhappy with the way Saudi society is organized. Therefore, I'm not. Gonna, I think isolation doesn't get you anywhere either, right? It's it's not. It's a symbolic statement, but it doesn't help address the problem. So I would I would encourage companies to get involved in the market. That I'd encourage internal discussions and say we have a manufacturing facility in China. How are our employees being paid? How are they being treated? If there is a complaint, if there's sexual harassment or something other, some other terrible happens, what rights do the employees have? Who do they go to? Are we being good corporate citizens, right, so that everybody in our business in China is being treated consistent with global human rights norms?
0: And what about issues like, for instance, subsidization of Chinese companies that have the effect of uh, making life a lot more difficult for, for foreign companies, not just operating in China, but operating in third markets as well. So right. um, there seems to be now sort of a, a pretty rapid increase in government spending in, in China yeah. on on different sectors. And of course, that's going to spill over the border and make life, you know, yeah. make competition difficult in in many other surrounding markets. I,
1: I, by the way, I think your premise is accurate. I think there's just something seductive about government spending that's sort of an open-ended bias that governments have, and uh, China might be particularly vulnerable to this because their government ministries are organized along old sort of Soviet lines. where We have a national rail ministry and a national steel ministry, and and so your ability to push back against steel subsidies is very limited, That uh, whereas at least in, in the U.S. or in Europe, at least you'll have a political discussion, and maybe you can restrain yourself to some extent. Um, so i think it's a long term challenge for china which is to say how do we how do we escape this because it's expensive and it's enormously inefficient and as you observe the rest of the world has to live with this you know it's uh, it's uh, it creates economic problems or even political problems for the rest of the world by the way i would say in some respects taking the subsidies might be the best course of action meaning if you're the european or america meaning this is what angela merkel did with uh, solar panels she said she determined that germany germany benefited more from having subsidized solar panels from china than it did than it benefited from protecting its own domestic solar panel industry which would have would have created solar panel jobs but would have made solar panels much more expensive and would have hurt germany's overall energy position so i think you have to be wise enough to say if the economic benefit from accepting the subsidy exceeds the economic cost of pushing back, uh, we might just accept the subsidy right so uh, so the subsidy can be uh, to your economic benefit
0: but but that would be sort of a case when when you're still talking about an in an input or a market where the margins weren 't that good, and sort of you can expand your margins in the economy by sort of importing subsidized solar panels, but sort of all the money you're going to earn is still going to be in the service and sort of when you when you put these panels on the roof of of uh, households and um of homes and 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 factories, et cetera. But what what in situations where we're talking about sort of frontline innovative sectors, uh where, you know, America, Europe, they've sort of spent enormous amounts of research money to develop innovative products and And suddenly they're being cut out of the Chinese market and they find that they are competing with Chinese producers in third markets that substantially undercut the prices and basically drive competition out. How how do we deal with uh, that? And
1: and by the way, you see elements of what you described even in traditional industries such as steel, where you have government, government subsidies in that industry, where I think there's no question that both U.S. and Europe want a domestic steel industry, and there's certainly strong economic logic for this industry, and it can, you know, large segments of it can compete globally. Maybe some, it's going to be tougher. But, uh, but how do you deal? look? As as you were suggesting, Europe and the U.S. can defend against that in their domestic markets through trade remedies, through anti-dumping and countervailing duties. But it's very, very tough if China is going to subsidize its steel exports, and we're competing in uh, Africa. Uh, for some construction projects. It's very, very tough to compete against that. So you're absolutely right. Look, I don't think industrial policy works. I don't think it helps the company, the country that's adapting industrial policy, but it's seductive and it can work in a specific incident. So in general, or in the long run, it, the costs exceed the benefit. China has done itself enormous damage by subsidizing its steel industry, right? And you 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 can talk to people from the, Ministry of Iron and Steel. And they said, "Look, we've got a few million people who work uh, in our industry. We're not going to just throw a few million people out of work." Well, that's the same argument we hear in the U.S., here in Europe. That I said, "Yeah, of course, of course, nobody can propose that you just fire three million people, but but you could have a phased out of the older plants, the heavy polluting plants, and and there could be you know over five or ten years you could rationalize it a bit without any real pain." So. Uh, that's a very different policy. But I uh, China's not shown that kind of appetite. This, by the way, we're into an interesting decade now in China. Uh, you, you began this conversation by asking Xi Jinping and what might he do after he gets his new his third term. What's interesting though, to bring it to this current discussion, this is the this is the decade in which China's workforce has already started to shrink. So that's industrial. Workforce is shrinking and its overall workforce is shrinking. And later this decade, its population actually starts to shrink. So I think this puts these questions you're raising front and center for the first time. I think if you'd asked a Chinese policymaker 10 years ago, how does this work? To say, look, I'm absorbing millions of people into my workforce. I've got no choice but to keep this humming. Now they're saying, look, actually, our workforce is shrinking. So I've got to become more automated. I've got to close down less efficient plants. I've got to focus more on societal dimension of what I'm doing. But this, this, I to my mind in China, this tend, will tend to be a lagging phenomenon. I Meaning, it will take several years to fully internalize this and get an agreement on this. Maybe that's not too different from Europe or, or the U.S. But so I see the market correcting itself.
0: I mean, many countries that are confronted with um... Demographic decline in the sense that average age is going up, and after a while, the labor force is going to shrink nominally. Uh, many doesn't respond by sort of becoming more open, more productive, and and more interested sort of in economic rationalism more broadly. They they rather see it as uh, as perhaps a, a development that is going to prompt them to become more defensive about the world. You think you think sort of. Is there a risk for that type of development? In China, sort of that a shrinking population, is going well, to feed well, into know, a, a political notion which is more exclusive and introvert. I I I wonder about that, Frederick. It is striking to me
1: how insular uh, Chinese leadership is among the great powers, the major powers. It is extraordinary how inward-looking. It, it, it both for career paths, for policymaking. I mean, it, it is, you, you won't find this in Europe, which tends to be much more broad gauge. You won't find this even in the U S which tends not to be, I think quite as internationally oriented as the European countries, but still meaning if you looked at a cabinet in Europe, uh, of a European country, the cabinet, and you ask how many of these members of the cabinet of Italy or the Netherlands or Poland, how many of these people's, uh, studied abroad or worked abroad for at least six months um, in a new country. I think you'll find a reasonable percentage in these countries have that kind of international security. If you ask that question in China, it's going to be more or less zero, more or less no one. No one has firsthand experience of other societies or how they work or how they operate. Nobody studied abroad. Nobody got a degree abroad. Nobody has friends from another country. I mean, what we would say is a rather routine element of someone who aspires If you want to lead a nation, you ought to have some kind of international orientation. I'd say it's very different. The way to the top in China is very simple. It is a 50-year-long job interview, and there's only one question on the job interview. Are you one of us? So the only real criteria for advancement is cohesion in China. Uh, And by the way, it's extremely effective. It's extremely powerful. It keeps the system intact. So you, you, you be careful about denigrating it, but boy, it also results in a high degree of insularity, right? Whereas you'd say, well, what's the key to the top in, you know, France or Germany or the United States is, you know, some kind of performance, but some kind of, some kind of work in a system that involves different points of view or different societies or differences that you've, you've been allowed to mediate disagreements and you're comfortable in that kind of environment
0: and would you say already now and perhaps even more in the future that this insularity has also started to spread in 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 the economic sector not just in the political sector i mean i mean i've picked up from both from companies and from the european european business association there that they find that you know the diversity in the workforce is getting smaller that the international expat community uh, in, in some of the large Chinese cities are shrinking. And it's f- f- increasingly difficult to be a foreigner living living in China, uh, le- leading to sort of a situation where it's just difficult to put together the type of teams, uh, the type of human capital you need to have, you know, compete well, with. I, 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 I don't
1: know. I think it's a little more complicated because you, what you described, I think, is accurate. That this Some of this is COVID-driven. That the international population of china is shrinking that's sort of the bad news if you will the good news is china's done something extraordinary that no other communist society did which is allow its young people to study abroad so although party leadership is not international society at home society at large has quite an international orientation uh, so it's really uh, kind of impressive that China said, you know, we do want to have a world-class economy. We do want to have world-class engineers and thinkers. We do want people exposed to international activity. So so on a societal basis or economic basis, there's a strata of managerial talent and financial talent, which is quite impressive in China. And again, the Soviets never had that logic. They never had the confidence in themselves. They never went down this path to say, we want our young people to travel abroad and come back. All right, so... Uh, so I give China credit for making this big step.
0: All right. We are very soon going to end. Just a final question, Frank, which is around um, uh, China's own outward orientation, Chinese investments in third market, Chinese investments in America and Europe. Are you bullish or bearish?
1: Um, I think it will continue, but I think there's uh, going to be a lot more scrutiny, a lot more skepticism, right? So I think I'd go back again to, well, what sector are you in? If you're in consumer goods, if you're making, you know, household appliances, uh, household electronics, uh, like uh, some of the Chinese smartphone manufacturers have gone global, I think people will feel very comfortable with that uh, activity. Uh, but if you're, if you want to be in the financial sector or the energy sector or um, even the tech sector, you're going to get a lot more scrutiny. Um, And there's all sorts of concerns about uh, Chinese participation in the economy. So I tell my friends in Beijing, you know, China's economy is so large, it's globally consequential, and Chinese political system is so different that it's really different than every other major economy to have a one-party state. It's not, it's just not the common practice. So I said, those two things tell me that China will get more applause from the international community than it's ever received in its history and it will also receive more criticism than it's ever received in its history right because it's now front and center on the world stage
0: yeah indeed that's um i mean what i used to say which is that for the past 25 years the biggest friction in international trade has been the rise of china and the yeah. biggest friction in the international trade in the next 25 years is going to be the rise of china And I suppose that's the inevitable consequence of commercial success. Frank, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for writing a great book, which I I recommend everyone to read who has an interest in, in sort of the nuts and bolts of of doing business in China, especially in the world of e-commerce. And we are most certainly going to come back to the issue of China in the future. Thank you so much.